0: all open today. Um, we just wanted to disclose a couple of things before we start. The language we have chosen to use in this episode is based on guidance provided by level playing field. Um, we will also be using the social model of disability in our discussion, which is where a disability is not based on a physical or mental impairment that someone has, but the social and physical barriers that prevent uh, disabled people from fully participating in our society. For example, a wheelchair user becomes disabled when there are steps preventing access. We also wanted to disclose our personal relationships to the topic. So while I do not identify as physically disabled, I do have a diagnosed learning difficulty, which affects my visual processing. I also suffer from chronic knee pain following a car accident I had two years ago. And while I wouldn't consider this to be a disability, it does impact on my ability to physically manage the research environment.
1: I also um, would not uh, classify myself as physically disabled or have a learning difficulty either. Um, But yeah, despite our limited personal experience, we wanted to uh, both educate ourselves and felt like this was an important topic to talk about so that we can improve uh, representation in science. If we do make uh, any errors or you feel we've misrepresented you, uh, please email us on tips pod at gmail.com and that's also listed in the show notes so do get in touch if you'd like to With that coverage on this week's episode what we do here is go back 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 back. Loud.
0: and welcome to unfiltered tips a podcast where myself kath and my friend rachel share in the struggles and successes of phd life in the uk each episode will bring you updates from our lives in the lab as well as discussing a topic relevant to phd life in more depth and this week is the second of three episodes on diversity and research we previously talked about the challenges facing women in science so if you missed that episode please do give it a listen and in the final episode in the mini series we'll focus on um, race and minority ethnic groups in science But today, we're going to take a look at what it's like to be working in science as a disabled person. In this episode, we hope to present the current state of play for disabled people in research, some of the challenges they face, and what steps that need to be taken to improve representation and retention of disabled people in science. But first, let's find out how things are going. So, Rachel, what have you been up to in the last two weeks since we recorded?
1: Um, On the whole, I've actually... (laughs) I haven't done too much to be honest apart from uh yeah I kind of do a lot of uh, uh planning for one and um yeah and just kind of uh get myself organized really um yeah that's uh, yeah and kind of just making sure stuff I have done previously is organized yeah uh bit, a bit of a slow a slow two weeks I'd say um I
0: feel like I need to roll with the slow two weeks though like because things can get hectic so quickly.
1: Yeah yeah exactly um I'm getting better at kind of uh you know like I think a lot of the first year is just you almost don't know what questions to ask because you haven't done stuff before and I'm all I'm getting to a stage now where I have a bit better of an idea of sort of what questions to ask about like future experiments and stuff. And like, I know mm-hmm. the things I need to ask about to ensure that, you know, I don't end up stressing or panicking all
0: day. Um, yeah, like there's a transition from the unknown unknowns to known unknowns and mm. known unknowns. So, like, you know what you don't know. That's much easier to deal with. Like, I feel at the start of your PhD, you have no idea what you don't know. Uh, so it's like you feel like you're swimming around and there's never ending ocean of unknowns basically yeah that's good though that's a nice transition at least um you know how you know what to ask for help with and
1: yeah there's always more unknown unknowns out there (laughs) yeah that's so true. oh my Um, yeah, and then how's your um, week, been, Kath, What have you been up to? Oh, You've man. Had some uh, good times. Weeks. There's some not so good. Oh my gosh, the last few weeks have been a bit bonkers. Like,
0: I am. Um, last week was really rough. I was just like struggling with analysing my data. Like, did, like the lab stuff was fine, but I just couldn't figure out how to analyse some data sets that I collected, which is my own fault, really, because I collected them before figuring out the analysis. So. Mm-hmm. You Know,
1: I was like, it'll be fine,
0: I'll all figure it out. It was not is fine,
1: like from an experiment, yeah. So, which is you know, not the
0: way to go about it because now it means that that experiment was kind of missing some important controls. So, oh, okay, yeah. like because I didn't think about the analysis side of things. Um, that's fine, we'll do it again, but um, yeah, I'm just like, that was a bit frustrating. Uh, was it an,
1: was it an organoid experiment? It was an organoid experiment.
0: Nice, I hate organoids. Nice. I hate them oh. so much. Why don't they just they just overcomplicate everything? Like oh. the moment you take anything into three
1: D, they're just like, and now we're not going to behave. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a real shame that you um decided to do your PhD in that, then isn't it really? Yeah, I, I know, but they seemed so
0: like <laughs> when I was when I did my undergraduate placement <laughs> with, with organoids, they seemed okay. They, they behaved. I got some nice streptophanin pull-downs with my 3D cells. And um, I was like, I can work in 3D. I actually had done, going into my PhD, I'd done more tissue culture in 3D than I had in 2D. Um, so I thought I'd be fine. But, you know, I just, it stressed me out a little bit, those organoids. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's fine. Everything's think it's fine. Um, and then this week, basically the last two weeks I've been, I was planning past tense now uh planning to do a fresh versus frozen size of experiment um so like last week well you know two weeks ago when you guys are listening to this I like did the prep where I froze down my samples and then the following week I did the prep with the fresh sample um so I like got the frozen sample out of the freezer and thawed it and then like popped it in for the rest of my cells um everything's barcoded everything's prepped ready to go I've got the iridium staying on I like text the manager of the core facility like oh it'll be done around this time ready to run probably around 11 and then the response I get is I'm really sick and I'm not coming in and I was like oh no (laughs) panic stations and she's like you'll just have to freeze down your sample and I was like in the back of my mind being like but this is a fresh versus frozen
1: experiment like
0: if I freeze the sample down, then they're all frozen.
1: <laughs> you have more frozen samples to use for next time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know, it's just a bit like,
1: uh, yeah, bye. it sucks. No, it completely um, sucks.
0: Yeah, and now she's on annual leave for two weeks. So I'm not going to be able to run these samples for like another two weeks, which mm-hmm. is just super depressing because the next experiment, I didn't. Like I didn't know what the experiment was going to be because I was going to look at this data and then make a decision. Yeah. Um, so I think it's such a departure from the plan that like we we don't we don't have a backup plan for this. So like usually I have like a couple backup plans like, but all of them involve me getting this data set. So mm. that was just a bit of a frustrating moment, and um, I don't massively know what to do because. The organoid stuff that I want to repeat, I want to use some different plates for, but they're not coming in until July. Because, um, you know, I don't know if you've realised that there's a massive shortage of culture dishes. So <laughs> like mm. the lead time on all the culture dishes, especially the fancy organoid culture dishes, is just months. So...
1: Yeah, we've had problems with ordering stuff as well,
0: and actually yeah. the same thing
1: happened um, to us in terms of like both the floor, both <laughs> the floor, both the flow facility. Course, city managers were yeah. off on one day on holiday, so Excellent. my PI had to do a sort. Yeah, of, to go and do the sort because like no one else is around to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh yeah. My God. Yeah, that's um. true.
0: Yeah, I know, all these people going on holiday, it's because it's half term, I think. Yeah, I
1: definitely, and
0: they've got kids, yeah. Yeah, so hot tip for everyone out there, don't plan your experiments during half term. Like, find where the school holidays are near you. And if you
1: need to use any core facilities, also. <laughs> if you need to use any
0: core facility equipment, like, typically people that go into core facilities want, like, more regular hours because they have a family. So they do take the half terms off. <laughs> um yeah that was just super frustrating but um i'm looking into basically i kind of know the frozen samples are going to be fine like everybody in the world freezes samples before they run them on site off i just wanted to do the fresh versus frozen as like a good control Mm -hmm. um so what i'm gonna do is still gonna do that but i'm gonna do it like later i'll just redo it um And then I might just prep some other experiments, like and run the like samples over the next few weeks and freeze down those cells like as I go. Sounds good.
1: Mixed two weeks for both of us then.
0: Yeah, definitely. Lots of highs and lows indeed. Okay, so um, we wanted to talk today about what it's like to be a disabled researcher. Um, but we thought we'd start off by sharing just some of the cold hard statistics of the situation. Um, so, start with how many uh, postgraduate researchers um, are actually disabled. So, in the UK, there's uh, the Higher Education Statistics Agency, or HESA. Um, says that 11% of students enrolled in postgraduate research degrees full time have a known disability. Um, but how that number breaks down into what kind of postgraduate research they're doing and what kind of disability they're doing doesn't really exist, um, so, at least formally in the UK. So we don't actually know how many uh, disabled people are involved in biological research specifically. Um, so, yeah, that's the headline figure from them is 11% of students have a no disability.
1: Cool. Yeah, and the latest figures estimate the proportion of disabled adults in the UK to be around 20%. So, that's not, that's not really reflective of the uh, adult population,
0: I guess. So, and the other thing we talked about before in our other episodes is the funding gap. And so, there's actually a really significant funding gap for grants going to disabled PIs and so both kind of estimates in the UK from various funding bodies and the USA and like the NIH suggests that between one and two percent of all scientific funding goes to PIs with uh, known disabilities so that's nothing that's like terribly low Um, like given that you know the proportion of disabled adults in the UK um, Uh, yeah like i just think that's kind of a shockingly low number
1: yeah for sure um yeah i guess yeah the main take-home from this is that yeah there's a you know there's a what's missing gap there's a lack of resolution in the data regarding disabled researchers um and furthermore breakdowns regarding types of disabilities researchers have or research they're doing and little to no data on how disabilities interact with other minority groups as well
0: yeah there's like no intersectional data so like how do you know the cumulative impact of yeah all these different um minority statuses like mm. if we're not measuring it then we don't know um so we can't get a current handle on like the situation and like the numbers of disabled researchers that are out there how long they're staying in the academic pipeline, where they're dropping out of the academic pipeline, and, like, the relative success of grant applications. Like, there's, like, no way of... And there's also no way of measuring improvement in the situation if you've got no kind of baseline statistical bedrock about the numbers of disabled researchers. So I think, like, yeah, we me mentioned that lack of data is... um kind of shocking but also something that really needs to be addressed um I don't know how you go about doing that I guess better surveys um we'll get into the uh known disability portion of this like obviously it requires people to report their disabilities um which is something we wanted to discuss a bit later
1: but also I don't know I just feel like um also people who yeah have disabilities aren't necessarily obvious and I think um potentially there's a pressure to seem like you're capable and you know yeah, ready to do anything in in the research environment and that uh, you can sort of yeah uh pretty much do anything and actually if there's something that makes it more difficult it, uh potentially people feel like it wouldn't benefit them to declare that which is probably something that needs to change and I guess that's why uh you see a a much greater proportion of disabled adults as comparing as compared to the amount of uh declared disabilities and stuff and students yeah. yeah that's highly likely as well yeah
0: and it's like without the data we won't really know like how many how why that gap's there if that's gap there's there because people with disabilities are like actively excluded from Mm -hmm. the research environment or if they're choosing not to disclose like we won't know without uh like I guess even research happening to find out those numbers so yeah
1: yeah exactly
0: um I think it's a really important aspect of this conversation um we thought um the most obvious thing to us to begin with would be the physical inaccessibility of the research environment Um like we can't lie about it like it's really physically demanding like I mentioned at the start of this episode like I have a chronic pain issue so that I find physically demanding in itself so the space is not designed um for disabled people and um, you just have to look around your workspace to see that um, so we thought we'd just mention some of the things we'd come up with, literally just from standing in our own labs, of like what would make the lab place challenging for someone who is disabled.
1: So mm. what did you come up with? Uh I guess, yeah, lab benches are designed to be used uh, standing and are fixed in place. Um, yeah. yeah, they can also be they have to be high enough to get a fridge underneath them as well uh That's that true. means they're too high for some people uh That's including <laughs> <yeah>. you <laughs> Including honestly yeah sometimes yeah. including me so one other thing that i uh, was saying was like high shelves um sort of a lack of i don't think sort of a lack of steps or ladders to, to like i don't think they're necessarily readily provided to reach high equipment um yeah and also having stuff or equipment on higher shelves or whatever is not a problem if you provide uh the relevant like equipment to help people reach the stuff uh on those mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on those shelves and in those higher places um but yeah so I think yeah that's one way that I thought of that the lab environment yeah. could be inaccessible.
0: I like as I was like, I was thinking about uh visually impaired researchers how um like all of our bottles of media and water and PBS and, and trypsin and glutamate they're all the same shape um yeah and there's like no distinguishable tactile features on the bottles that could help you distinguish what's what um I am thinking about the fact that all antibody tubes are the same and yeah. like they're hard to read like like I mentioned about my visual processing disorder but like when I'm looking at that tube and the label on that tube and the way that the text is organized and the fact that like the company's name is bigger than the name of like the actual protein target of the antibody that like, I just like get so confused about, wait, what is this actually targeting? And like, it says like anti this mouse, anti that, like it's just all very confusing. Um, mm. So I thought like that was a really big issue. Um, and then like, you see, with the same theme of, like, visual impairment, like, microscopes are not designed to be used wearing glasses. Yeah. It's a massive bugbear of mine. Like, yeah, yeah. It's very good um, point. Like, what I, what I had to do until i in mean, my current lab, my current lab is brilliant for this. Like, we actually have our microscopes linked up to cameras in our lab. So oh, you're awesome. looking at your results on a big screen, um, which is amazing and so much better than every other lab I've ever been in where I've had to, like, take my glasses off to look down the microscope and then focus it to my eyesight. But then if I wanted someone to check it, like they have to come and refocus it. And it's just like,
1: yeah, that was always um something I thought of. Um, yeah. I guess another thing I thought of is that um, it's not really very clear about how you get like uh, support animals. Like what if you need a support mm. dog? Like technically there's no reason how, why, you couldn't sort of implement a very clear kind of way to do that safely and to have a, a support dog in the lab with you yeah. safely. Um, but I don't think it's – I remember reading an article, and I think it was just very hard that the researcher who wrote it to kind of uh, – like it wasn't necessarily clear about, like, yeah. how they could how they could do that. And, um, yeah, it'd be great if stuff like that was more sort of readily mm. thought about so that if someone yeah. was in that position – it wasn't uh, hard for them to sort of find out how they can make it work for them.
0: Yeah, like it was at the forefront of people's minds. I guess one of the other things um, that I think pertains more to older research buildings is like accessible entrances have been like added on to those buildings, which means they tend to be out of the way. And I also think like internally in older buildings, at least older labs that I've been in, there's like a lot more internal steps and a lot more um like lack of lifts lack of internal ramps like um my lab is split across split levels and if i wanted to get a lift to go up to the other level then i'd have to like walk really far down another corridor to get the lift um and so like that's just really frustrating and like I it's a big issue i think that's not really necessarily thought about like um we're gonna read a quote from his blog post um in a bit but Jesse Shanahan um who's an astro astrology he's in I don't know what's the word for that astrologist I guess yeah um studies astrology but um he talks about um he's never visited an observatory that was fully accessible um Mm -hmm. like he always had to manage stairs of some kind to get into different areas of the observatories and that's usually because observatories are super old buildings and they're like you know all listed buildings so they can't have the modifications made to them that would make them accessible um so yeah that's some of the ways we've thought about the fact that it's physically inaccessible and mm-hmm. i have actually thinking personally like we're getting a brand new building um in two years time and I really don't know if much thought has gone into building I like research building with accessible design principles in play um because like from the looks of the plans it doesn't look like it's really being considered and that's I think such a shame and such a missed opportunity because how often are you building like a brand new research institute um yeah yeah and, and you could sign it with all these things in mind yeah. yeah like use universal design principles um with these things in mind but I doubt that will have happened Um, maybe there's still times you get them to put in like movable
1: lab benches (laughs) yeah that you can raise up and down
0: yeah like our desks (laughs) yeah um so
1: (laughs) yeah
0: but it's not just uh that science is physically inaccessible it's also can be quite socially inaccessible so like the quote being like the barriers doesn't end at the top of the stairs um Mm. like I think um we wanted to read a quote from Jesse Shanahan's article about this. So I'm just going to read that now. Um, And he says, although science is by no means intrinsically inaccessible, nothing about the data we gather or the analysis we do inherently excludes people with disabilities. The prevailing attitudes in science create these barriers. Most science, technology, engineering, and math programs insist that researchers sacrifice both their mental and physical health to succeed unnecessarily long hours, undue degrees of stress and overwhelming pressure that can cause even the healthiest person to develop anxiety and depression. For a person with a disability, coping with these pressures along with a permanent or chronic condition can be devastating. Um, mm-hmm. and we wanted to read that because we think it really well sums up that socially inaccessible side to science. I think we both agree that the unhealthiness of the culture persists even though there's like people in our scientific generation trying to change it no i totally
1: agree i totally agree um i think there's far more talk about this kind of this kind of stuff now um for sure and um yeah it's i just feel like yeah there's things are starting to change but there is a long there's a long long way to go to Mm-hmm. to truly really make a science sort of environment that is just more conducive to good mental health consequently and also physical health too
0: yeah and it's like definitely one of those things that can be um difficult that like we talked about with the accessibility of it like at the moment I still feel like I'm called to work any odd hours of the day like maybe I have to stay into like 9pm because the timings of my experiment are working out such a way and like actually if you're a researcher that requires an actual person to assist you on a daily basis like you can't and you can't loan work like if you're not physically capable of loan working and you don't have that assistant available um then you can't do experiments that require you to be in the lab at like 9pm at night or back at six in the morning and And that, like, lack of independence that is so coveted in research, like, being able to do things independently, like, that, in a way, like, excludes somebody, Um, which I think is really challenging. Um, I think we also need to think about the fact that there are lots of of invisible disabilities that are affected by this, like, socially inaccessible side of science. Um, Like neurodivergence like having ADHD or being on the autistic spectrum like can make it challenging to thrive in an environment where like are surrounded I don't know like there's a, requ- a requirement to be hyper-focused and a requirement to like the structural social models of research that are in place like not everybody can thrive in that world yeah um,
1: yeah there's just like you know, like yeah, we there, I guess there's just an inherent sort of pressure, I also think to kind of uh appear capable and to yeah. sort of not not let people see how how kind of much hard work goes into making a graph look nice, yeah, or whatever, like even like like I know it's it sounds silly, but um, it's a lot more. there's there's a lot more that like we want presentable data and people to understand our data and like when the the temptation is to not put as much effort into that when you know Mm. but like people don't I think people just kind of don't necessarily yeah go and just produce things and then not say actually this is really really tough to, to actually produce this or whatever um I mean, I think, I think, but like I say, I, don't know, I think it's getting better. But um, yeah, I think there is this inherent kind of uh, ideal of appearing capable and appearing like nothing is mm-hmm. difficult. <laughs> okay. I think also in some cases, maybe I'm wrong, I, I don't know. It's no, really
0: I think good. you're right. I think you're right, and I think I think that also there's a challenge in terms of just like, but the idea of like neurodivergence and not being neurotypical like and that relationship with that has to science just in the media even like the Sheldon Coopers of the media like I don't think that represents how challenging the actual research environment is for someone who's on the spectrum who is autistic like obviously like actually I think like neurodivergence is so helpful and so key because you connect patterns that other people can't connect. And that's such a gift in research, like being able to see unique patterns. But like, we shouldn't hold up figures, like made up figures like Sheldon Cooper, like it undermines also the very real struggle
1: mm, um, yeah. faced by
0: people who are not neurotypical. Um, and yeah. in the sense of like not being neurotypical, like that can be something that you try and like hide, but because you don't want to be seen as less capable mm. or because it's not a physical like it's an invisible disability in a way um mm. and like it, it is this real difficult tension because it's like at what point is being open about your disability empowering or is it going to hinder you and like there's an inherent risk in that and like I think obviously there shouldn't be a risk like mm. in disclosing a disability like but I know a lot of researchers that are disabled feel that there is a risk in doing that. Um, yeah, because of that, like being idea of being seen as less capable,
1: which is not the case, and it shouldn't be the yeah.
0: case. Yes, um, that kind of I guess really does bring us into this idea of like being open about disabilities and being open in the workplace and in the lab. And obviously, there are legal protections in place. In the UK, the Equality Act is what requires all institutions to make reasonable adjustments for disabled researchers and students. But I think, in a sense, like the legal requirement isn't really enough um, because often it's really only the legal requirements are only thought about like once a disabled researcher is like there and needing assistance um, rather than. Generating an environment that is already adjusted and would allow a disabled person to thrive. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I wanted to read another quote um, from, oh my gosh, I'm going to say this wrong. I'm really sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, but Nahida Stoutout. Um, and she kind of has recounted her experience in a Nature Careers article. She is a visually impaired researcher, um, and she talks about kind of her experience of applying for master's programmes and PhD programmes, but um, she kind of talked about something which I was quite surprised about, which was having to go on trial lab placements so that potential supervisors could assess if she was going to be capable for their work environment. And this is... A hoop that literally no non-disabled person would ever have to jump through yeah um and I was quite shocked by it, but this is what she had to say about this um one professor did show interest in hiring me but we agreed it was best that I work in her lab first but to assess my abilities even though this 10-week internship meant relocating to another province in my home country of Canada I decided to pursue it as an opportunity to develop my skills and learn new techniques. In the first week, I was assigned a few simple molecular biology tasks, performing polymerised chain reaction and analysing samples using gel electrophoresis. I was content that I had done my best. During week two, I was shown how to dissect mouse embryos under the microscope, a much more challenging task for me, but one that I knew I could perfect given enough time my disappointment, by the end of the week three, I was told to go home because I was not a good fit for the fast-paced lab environment. Um, and she did go on to complete another trial position in a different lab, and they did feel they were able to hire her. And she's now actually completed her PhD. Uh, and her, her three-minute thesis video is on YouTube, and I gave it so you can give it a watch. I'm going to link that in the show notes. But I think it was really interesting and very brave of her to share the fact that. Mm-hmm. To get a master's programme, she had to go to two different trial lab like experiences. You can kind of see why someone might be hesitant in disclosing a disability.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's mad. It's crazy that um, it shows you just the, the emphasis on productivity. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the worry there is like, oh, like, will someone... Uh, if I hire this person, will they be as productive? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's entirely down to that. Will they be able to produce as much? And it's just a real... It's a flaw in the, the system of of research as a whole, I suppose. Yeah, it's definitely,
0: like, the fact that she mentions, like, she could perfect it given enough time. Like, she's going to be... Like, the fact that she has a visual impairment means that, yes, she will be slower to gain skills or figure out how to adapt her skills to the challenges that she has. But ultimately she can do that and she can get there. And like, that's proven by the fact that she's got a PhD and like, yeah, like, yeah, like the fact that they kind of referenced it being a fast paced lab environment and that's why she wasn't a good enough fit. Like, why does it need to be? <laughs> like, yeah. um, I think that like focus on productivity and output kind of harms everybody. Um, as well as harming you know disabled researchers even more so yeah I was kind of shocked to read that um yeah interested as well um and that we talked about like people don't feel um willing to disclose a disability um because of the stigma around disabilities still um this closing doesn't really feel like a moment of empowerment. It feels like a risk. Um, So there was another blog that talked about um, from Scientific American and uh, two researchers were sharing their uh, account from a researcher that has OCD and their decision not to disclose that. Um, So Rachel, why don't you read this quote out so we can kind of hear that experience?
1: Yeah, I will. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah, again, Ask this is a reading from a blog post in Scientific American by Gabby Sorato marx and Skylar Bayer, And uh, they say this. True access goes beyond legal requirements. It involves thoughtful dedication to creating a culture of inclusion and understanding of all disabilities that allows everyone to perform at the highest level. The researcher with OCD, for example, said that part of the challenge of living with a mental illness is the lack of understanding. They say, my OCD diagnosis becomes confused with my personality and my identity, she wrote. I don't want to be viewed as someone who just obsesses over things and worries. That stigma is why she chose to remain anonymous. Moreover, it's hurtful when people joke about having OCD when they're simply cleaning or working carefully. Those types of comments make OCD out to be a preference rather than a disorder that affects all aspects of someone's life. This is where allies can come in. If you want to foster an environment that includes disabled scientists, don't make jokes about real disorders. I thought that was
0: just a really powerful quote about, like we said, we have to go beyond the reasonable adjustments required by the Equality Act. Like, we need to change the culture to make it socially accessible, to make it physically accessible and inclusive. Um, I liked that idea of having an understanding of disabilities so that you can make appropriate adjustments, like preemptively. So that, like about your culture, like we talked, like, I think when you, you hit the nail on the head when you're like, it's all about productivity, it's all about output. And like, that's so true. Like we're all grinding ourselves into the ground to get enough papers, to get enough data um to like get enough funding to move on to the next step or the lab's dead and it's just like the way the whole way that it gets out from top to bottom like doesn't enable us to create an environment that is inclusive um and i mean like that's kind of the big thing right like it was it's a really old structural system that has excluded people that are not white that are not men you know, from the
1: from day one, and so and consequently, one that also doesn't foster people developing new skills at their own at their own pace either. No, you know? exactly. Um, it's um, you know who can get there quickest. Who can produce this data quickest? Who can produce this thing without me having to put time and effort into teaching them?
0: Yeah, and I think like it's
1: so important that
0: we as non-disabled researchers think about the way we talk and act and engage with other researchers around us because Mm. we don't know if they've got a undisclosed disability yeah um and we want to make sure that our language and our choices are inclusive but also like if we don't know any people that are disabled in our workplace to still be advocating for An inclusive and accessible workplace. Um, Mm. Because for all we know, the reason that a disabled person might have been put off coming to our workplace was because it was seemed inaccessible. Um, And like ultimately then we're missing out on the voices of disabled people, the topic choices of disabled people, and the ideas and pattern connections of disabled people that like are all going to be super important to scientific research. Yeah. Like I don't know, in my opinion. Any difference enhances your capability as a researcher. Like
1: yeah, it's the whole thing about like why you want um, diversity in the workplace as well. You yeah. Know, if, well, if you have diverse uh, a diverse group of people working, you have diverse viewpoints. You have diverse experience levels and different you know personal experience as well, who all kind of contribute something. And that's exactly the same for. Um, you know, people who who are disabled like they they've had they they still bring something you know it's like yeah, yeah. and even though like they yeah they, you know that's not it's it's hard to sort of see why uh it's hard to see that people uh or the system encourages seeing people who have this with is maybe not not bringing as much to the team, Mm -hmm. or not being able to produce much. Which is, like, not true. like Exactly,
0: yeah. Given the right environment, with the right accessibility modifications, and, like like we said right at the beginning, a wheelchair user is only disabled when there are stairs in the way of their access. So what are the metaphorical stairs in the way of people's access, or physical stairs, to the world of research and how can we begin to like tear them down.
1: Yeah, um, exactly.
0: And like that's something that us as non non-dis-, disabled researchers have to be thinking about and have to be making the moves to do. Yeah. Um probably while so, we're doing that this yeah which yeah. us to educate ourselves on it as well. So yeah, yeah exactly. Um so the final thing we wanted to mention that was brought up on kind of almost everything that I read um was the importance of good mentorship and support um, you know like we mentioned this on the episode about women but having mentors that share your experience can improve that relationship but also like can help you um, develop as a researcher and because there are so few disabled PIs um or like so few disabled people that reach the point where they might have a mentee. Mm-hmm. Um, that that means that there's like that lack of like peer-peer mentorship support or like shared experience mentorship support to yeah. help young disabled researchers navigate their way through the research pipeline. Um, yeah. so in some way there needs to be kind of a step-up of non-disabled PIs to really think critically about how they mentor a young disabled researcher so that we can have more visibility of disabled researchers in the future
1: yeah yeah exactly it's the whole thing of um see yeah seeing someone in that position you know can can be the thing that makes you think you can get that yourself or that one day Mm -hmm. you might be able to achieve that too you know um yeah if you don't see anyone in your sort of that you identify with in in a certain context how how can you place yourself in that context you know Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah definitely true so yeah it's just kind of a call to action really isn't it to think about who you can mentor like in a peer relationship or if you are maybe a postdoc or a PI listening to this like how can you uh, reshape your mentoring to aid and enable uh, disabled researchers that's kind of all we have to say
1: on the topic um uh yeah I mean learning like reading for, for this myself is definitely um helped me kind of think about this more so I hope this encourages everyone else too as well yeah, we definitely put all of our sources in a Google Doc like we did with
0: our previous episodes so that you can go um, read what we've read, um, go and find even more to read. Um, we found it so interesting researching for this episode. It was really like something we were like very on the fringe awareness of. Um, and now I feel a lot more aware and a lot more uh, mm. empowered to start advocating for change in my workplace um so i think yeah. like it's good to have that and like we encourage you to think about ways that you can advocate for change in your own labs um yeah so we hope you found listening to this like fruitful and interesting again please do get in touch with us if you have any comments um you can dm us on twitter we're at unfiltered tips or you can email us um unfiltered tips at gmail.com
1: Thanks for listening uh, today, folks. Uh, Yeah, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, If you did, share it far and wide. Yeah, thanks. And
0: while you're uh, checking out the sources in the show notes, why not give us a follow on Twitter, at Unfiltered Tips. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email us, like we said. Our sound production and design is by Josh Cooper, and we'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Unfiltered Tips. Thanks again for listening. Bye.
1: What we do here is go back, 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 back.